Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Horn Call podcast. My name is James Bolden. I'm the publications editor for the International Horn Society and your host. It's my honor today to talk with one of my musical inspirations and musical heroes on the horn, Jeff Scott, who is probably most well known for being the uh, hornist in the Imani Wind Quintet for many, many years and is now the Associate Professor of Horn at Oberlin Conservatory in uh, Oberlin, Ohio. He's also going to be a featured artist at IHS 55 this summer in Montreal. And this episode is coming out uh, before IHS 55, so there's still time for you to get registered and take a trip up there. Louis-Philippe Marcelet, the host of IHS 55, and his team have put together just a terrific um, symposium for everyone that's going to be there. And if you're not, we will miss you, but we hope that you will be able to attend a future IHS symposium. Uh, Jeff Scott and I talk today about a lot of different things. We have a really good time. He's such an engaging and just vibrant person to speak to, and I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation as well. Again, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with me today. I'm, I'm really excited about it. You're uh, one of my musical heroes, for sure. Well, thank you. And like I said, off camera, you are all, you're very well known. So it's a pleasure <laughs> to finally meet. Well, thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Um, so maybe just I, on the off chance that folks might not be familiar with who you are and what you're doing right now, you want to give us the little thumbnail sketch of what, what your current uh, position and job is, and then kind of the, the path you took to get there? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm currently the associate uh, professor of horn at Oberlin Conservatory. I've been here for three years. Um, before that, uh, I had spent pretty much 20, 24, I think it was 24 years as a touring musician with the Imani Winds and Quintet. Um, and I also lived in New York City uh, where I was freelancing and um, you know, doing the, the grind like everybody else, you know, all my, my great colleagues in New York City. Um, I played Broadway shows. Uh, I had uh, played The Lion King for seven years from the opening and then, uh, you know, went on with Imani. Um, I went to school in New York City. I went to Manhattan School in Stony Brook. Um, uh, born in New York. Um, and I tell you, I was really fortunate because um, I, uh, I, I, you know, I grew up in Queens. And um, in the in the seventies and eighties, um, in Far Rockaway, Queens, it wasn't cool to play French horn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, me with a French horn coming into uh, I was at uh, Brooklyn College preparatory division. Um, me doing that on a Saturday was so uncool in my neighborhood. I can't get <laughs> to tell you, um, but I was the kid, and this is no joke. I was the kid that, um, if you remember, what a boombox. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I had a boom box and I was known for like walking down my, my block and it would shuffle. The tape would shuffle from Mozart horn concertos to like rap music, like one tune right after the next. And that was that was how I was the biggest nerd in Far Rockway known, <laughs> you know, but that was my thing. And I uh, I really owe most of everything to a wonderful woman and um, a teacher uh, her name was carolyn clark a french horn player and uh, she was at the preparatory division 
at uh, Brooklyn College. And um, uh, I was on a scholarship that was yeah. actually anonymously given to me. I didn't know that until much later. Um, when the scholarship ran out, I was still in high school and we didn't have the bread uh, to continue there. And so Carol taught me for free for the next uh, two and a half years to make sure that I got into conservatory. Mm. I kind of owe the whole thing because I definitely, I, you know, we didn't have it. So I would definitely stop and done something else. And uh, Carolyn sort of invested in me. And uh, she's, she's, she's second mom right now. You know? That's awesome. Yeah, it's very good. That's, that's the, that's the Reader's Digest. <laughs> now I remember, uh, I think in a, in a masterclass many years ago, you mentioned something about, you know, you, you had this successful career playing Lion King and you were kind of doing the chamber music thing on the side, or maybe, I mean, it's tough to balance a full-time Broadway gig with basically anything else. You know, you have to arrange for subs anytime you're going to miss a show or something like that. So how did you arrive at that decision to basically go like all in with, with Imani wins? Well, you know, the, the, the MD kind of helped me make that decision. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, you know, I don't have to name any names, but you know, it's the, we have the rule on Broadway. You know, it's the fifty percent rule, mm. and um, over uh, every three months or four months, I can't remember what it was. But um, uh, as Imani went started to get more and more busy, um, I was, you know, taking week here, two weeks there um, to do these residencies we were doing, and I came to the office. Um, uh, I, I know it was like it was in spring. It was kind of like May or something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I was coming into the office to ask for a, a, a two-week leave for, for a residency. And um, the, the MD kind of knew I was coming. I had arranged it, and he had he had um, my pay stubs, <laughs> copies of my pay stubs on the table. Oh wow! And and it's the year to date in May was eleven hundred bucks. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> So, so he looked at me, and I kid you not, he just said, "Jeff, how do we get here?" <laughs> and I, you know, and he basically said, "Listen, you know, there, there are people in town that can really use this chair, and if you're, you know, things are happening for you, um, you know, consider maybe, you know, giving it up." Didn't exactly say it that kindly, but um, I got the hint, and um, it was a tough decision. Um, at the moment, because uh, Imani was was doing well, but not as well as a Broadway show. We didn't have health insurance, you know, mm -hmm. that whole thing. So uh, it was a tough decision. But the decision really was about um, me wanting to challenge myself. I see. Um, you know, I'd gone to conservatory like everybody else, and you know, wanted to wanted to test the limits of you know my talent. Um, and after about a week you have tested your limits at a Broadway show, you know, you, right. you know, we're, we're, we had it memorized within a month. And, um, the only test was really the chops. Like, can you get through eight shows? That was kind of, mm -hmm. the, but not the music, musical content. And so, um, I really wanted to play art music. I wanted to be challenged. I wanted to collaborate with other musicians. I wanted to see the world. Um, mm -hmm. So it actually wasn't a tough decision in the end of the day. Uh, and, well, literally the, the best decision I've, I've made in my musical career uh, to leave the show and uh, jump on board with the Imani Wins. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And 
you know, I imagine once, once you got out of school and started, you know, working full time, and then especially probably when you got into Imani, you probably started to realize, hey, there's a lot of skills that I need to be successful in this that maybe I didn't learn in college. There's maybe not, not a class specifically for that set of skills you need to make make it in in the in the music business are, are there anything anything big that comes to mind stuff you learn kind of outside of school um almost everything <laughs> and I, you know and it, it, the, you know in all honesty um because i think you know when you go to conservatory at least you know these days i want to think that things have changed especially with entrepreneurial classes and, mm-hmm. and you know the, the idea that you could actually cross-collinate in other departments and learn how to improvise and all those kinds of things. But uh, that stuff just wasn't available. That, you know, that pathway wasn't available in the, in the seventies and the eighties. And so um, it, it was kind of like trying to learn a, a foreign language out of a book mm-hmm. and then being placed in that foreign country, uh, you know, like that. And like, you know, you kind of understand what people are saying, but it's not relating to anybody in a real tangible way. That's the way I felt like when I got out of school. It's like I, I, I knew how to play the horn, but not specifically to anything that needed to be applied. So, you know, I was getting called to play um, road shows with like uh, uh, Barbara Streisand and Luther Vandross. And that was a certain type of way to blow into the instrument and lilt eighth notes and um, and then you get, you know, you get called to play the uh, contemporary, uh, uh, you know, new music things. And then there was techniques that, you know, you just never, got to, you know, like <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't learn how to sing and blow through the horn until I was out of school. You know, I mean, there was just things that you just, you know, you had to learn on your own. And um, uh, all of that stuff came into play reading through scores with the, with the quintet mm-hmm. commission, you name it out of every genre. We brought it to the classical stage and um, these composers were so excited about having musicians that were willing to go to that next place um that was um you know a departure from the killer bees Right, right. Well, and and you know the your approach was so fresh, and the I mean you were obviously playing at a really high level too. That's that's got to be you know a given. You were playing great, but then the the repertoire was so so new, and you hadn't heard wind quintets, you know, let alone horn play this kind of stuff really before. So I think that was really, you know, really an amazing thing. Plus, you know, you did the recordings and collaborations and all of that stuff. Um, now you've already kind of mentioned, you know, having having the boombox on your shoulder, and then you got the different different kinds of music coming out of it. What 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 are some what were some of your musical inspirations growing up? Um. Well, I told my mom when I was uh, about 14 or 15 that I was going to be the Michael Jackson of French horn. Okay. I wanted to play pop, rock, soul on the French horn. I don't know. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I figured I was going to do it. It still hasn't quite worked out. But <laughs> my musical <laughs> inspirations were the music that I grew up with. You know, I grew up in Queens and then in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I was listening to soul, rap. Meringue, I mean, you name it. I, um, I, you know, my, all my best friends were you know, the whole spectrum. Mm-hmm. Best man at my at my wedding was, was Orthodox Jew. I mean, you know, we I, everything I heard, you name it. And so those were my my inspirations. And I wanted 
in all honesty, I wanted the music that I performed to reflect that. Mm-hmm. It really did, to be really <laughs> honest. Um, but um, aside from that, um, you know, when you talk about inspiration for a young person, um, it could it, it could be really simple. Um, you just want to be able to see somebody that looks like you doing mm. something, and then you go, "Oh man, I can do that!" You know. And so when I was coming up, my inspirations were the people that I saw. So I, you know, I wanted to be Reggie Jackson. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and in fact, when I got this job here and I did the interview, they they give you a couple of minutes to sort of tell you tell them about yourself you uh-huh. know, to, to the search panel. You know. And I, the first thing I said was, you know, I, I didn't want to be a horn player. I wanted, to, <laughs> I wanted to play for the New York Yankees. I wanted to be a Michael Jackson, oh, Reggie Jackson. And it's the God's honest truth because he was my idol, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and without the internet, we just didn't, I didn't know who Jerome Ashby was. Right. I didn't know who Bob Watt was. You know, I didn't, I, these people, you know, Willie Ruff, Julius Watkins, I didn't know. So I didn't think, you know. In fact, I was in New York Youth Symphony, um, how old it was, 16, 15, 16. And later in that year, we were going to do a side-by-side with the New York Philharmonic. And um, it was first rehearsal, and we were playing some piece, I don't know. And the conductor, uh, David Allen Miller, I played my little solo thing. And he goes, man, that was just fantastic. No, we keep that up. We're going to sound just like Jerome Ashby one day. I had no idea who he was talking <laughs> Not a lit you know like i was like cool <laughs> that'd be great <laughs> you know but that's you know um we, just that we didn't i didn't see that but i will tell you this uh, when we did that side by side and he sat next to me and we did this joint thing and that was all fine but then the philharmonic played something by themselves mm-hmm. and it was the overture to Oberon. yeah and I'm looking over, I'm sitting right next to Jerome Ashby, and I'm looking at the music, and he says to me, Mr. Scott, have you ever played this? you ever heard this music before? And I was like, oh, you know, 14, 15. And I'm looking at it, and it looks a lot like whole notes. Like, mm-hmm. Good deal, you know? And he said, you're never going to forget it. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and the conductor is the coolest thing in the world, because the conductor didn't even conduct him. He just sort of, you know, like, you may begin. And Mr. Ashby played, and that it started so soft. I'm sitting right next to it. I could barely hear it. <laughs> and it grew to this thing. And you could feel the resonance of his sound on the side of your body. And then he diminuendoed into the strings. And I looked down the section to the rest of my colleagues who were like, <laughs> <laughs> like Jaws on the floor. Yeah. So that was that was the first time I was just like blown away, and I was like, "That that's what I want to be." Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the next thing was um, I started getting recordings of my favorite horn sounds that I was hearing. Um, and my teacher, one I went to Caroline Clark, I went to a, a lesson one day. She had a recording of uh, Myron Bloom mm-hmm. playing the, uh, the the Brahms Trio at at Marlboro. Uh, with uh, a serpent and a tree, mm-hmm. <laughs> that that's that's the way I want to sound. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I aspire. So those were kind of my big my big heroes. Long. That's really cool. And tell me a little bit about how you got into composing and arranging, because that that's another equally impressive part of your career. You've got this performing career, very distinguished, but then you're you're I'd say you're pretty well known as a composer too. Oh, thank you for saying that. 
Um, well, you know, um, when I got out of college, actually while I was still in, and then when I got out, I started playing around New York City, and there were tons of these um, experimental bands going around. Everybody was doing their own funky thing. And I was in this group called No No Nanet. Yes, the takeoff. <laughs> it was an all brass and percussion band. And uh, the members all did the writing because it was an odd instrumentation. There was no specific music for it. And so the guys that were doing it, Rob Sussman, Glenn Makos, um, other, uh, you know, they were all bringing in charts. And I was just checking out what they were doing. And they were like, Jeff, you got to bring some charts in. We need, we need music, you know. So I started dabbling, and they were horrible. I mean, you know, they really <laughs> terrible. Type. Um, but I started to hear kind of like what they were doing, how they would orchestrate, you know. Um, so I started learning that in, in, in that band. I was kind of like how I sort of got, you know, incubated into the thing. But then to tell you the truth, it was playing with Imani Wins. Mm-hmm. The wind quintet, you know, up until about 20 years ago, just didn't have any music. He just just didn't have it, you know. I mean, it was you know, Donzi and Rika. Yep. <laughs> and then then composers took a nap. Yep. And woke up in 1940, and then you got some really great stuff, you know, the Hindemiths and, and you know the Bill Lobos and all. But then there's like you know there's like a few things in there, but nothing to make a career. Mm-hmm. Touring year after year after year, and so Valerie Coleman, my sister from another Mister, um, she she was already. Uh, uh, you know, a graduate from Boston University and studying also at at um, Manus, and she um, she was bringing in fresh stuff, and I was mm-hmm. just checking out how she was doing things. She was getting colors and using the instruments in, in unconventional ways, you know. And I said, ah, okay. So I started with arranging, bringing in some stuff like piazzolla stuff, that kind of thing, and then I really started going for it. And then when I started um, bringing it in, you know. I mean, the bottom line is when you bring something into an ensemble of that level, if it sounds bad, it's probably bad writing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so it was like this perfect lab band because I would bring in, you know, half a page or something and and they would even tell me, you know, it would be better if you did this, da 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 da, you know. Um, and that's how I learned, to be mm-hmm. really honest. That was that was how I did it. And so I guess I mean this is a this is a French horn music podcast, so we might as well get into the weeds. Do you want to talk a little bit about your composition process and how you, you know, or maybe even like how you figure out? Well, that might sound good adapted for wind quintet, or you know, what kind of what kind of process do you go through? Um, well, first of all, I always make sure the horn part is the easiest part. <laughs> then, <laughs> just you know, because I get to do I get to make the decision. So right, yeah. I mean, the whole notes, you know, um, <laughs> just kidding. But um, the process has always been, um, in terms of how to select repertoire, was like, what was the need of the ensemble? Do we need mm-hmm. a, a big meaty piece? Do we need an opener to kind of get people blah, 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 blah? Uh, do you need a closer? Um, so that was, the, we, we'd call it like, you know, um, preparing a meal. Mm-hmm. And um, we'd say, do you need an appetizer? Blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, source material for me, uh, was always trying. I was always trying to find something that hadn't been in the genre previously, mm. uh, and that caused issues because wind quintet always had the stigma of sort of that cute ensemble that plays, you know, light and fluffy, and and it never, you know, it, it just 
no one ever thought about it seriously, you know, because it just didn't rock like a brass quintet, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had the secret weapon. <laughs> we had Monica Ellis, the bassoon player. That you, you can't imagine, like sitting next to somebody that plays bassoon from a Copeland style to a Duke Ellington style. It mm-hmm. was like two or like Earth, Wind, and Fire, mm-hmm. like. This woman plays the full spectrum, and it allowed for not only for the group to be able to switch into different genres of music, which meant a lot of ethnic and folk music, but it also allowed me as a horn player to just play the horn mm-hmm. and not feel like I had to play so soft and you know and delicate, you know. And for that reason, then that that foundation that she gave us also allowed the players to really play with orchestral sounds, and there are not many wind quintet horn players that get to experience that. That, um, that is a, a, an amazing feeling. Mm-hmm. So I, my perspective when I was writing this music was that it didn't matter what the genre was because I knew my band was going to come with it. So I could write, you know, like screaming parts and, and I just knew it was going to work. I knew it was going to work, you know? <laughs> um, and so we did, man, we did everything. We did African drum, drum circle music. We did, um, and solo tangos but we just went into so many different genres and then the jazz cats started started hearing what we were doing mm-hmm. and you know i don't know what your experience is with you know crossing over and playing you know i'm not a jazz musician you know? same yeah you know, same I, but you put me in a jazz band and i did play and have played for many years with the lincoln center a uh, uh, jazz ensemble when they need a horn, and it's never like I'm not blowing, but you know they have a horn part, mm-hmm. the swing and all that stuff. Like I know how to swing. Man, they started hearing like this wind quintet that could play, you know, in a certain style, very Copeland esque, and then bam, flip and make it like down home blues. Ooh, we started getting calls from like you name it. I mean, literally Wayne Shorter, Chick Curry, you name it. We were doing, and I, it just I cannot tell you the thrill, the ride that was playing with these guys in these crazy stages and all over the world and like swinging and not even like, I'm not, I never, like Brahms never went through my mind. <laughs> you know? And I love Brahms, you know what I mean? I like, but to, to be able to be in an ensemble um, that allows you to have that whole other spectrum, side of the spectrum and, and to be, you know, respected for being able to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a, uh, an incredible uh, feeling, you know, and they're still doing it. You know, I'm the old fogey that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it it certainly seems like you're keeping busy, though. I mean, <laughs> I don't, it, I don't, doesn't look like you slowed down any. So, yeah, I but I imagine you know, bringing that into your your teaching job now. I mean, what a what a wealth of experiences you have, you know, from coaching chamber ensembles to you know talking to people about this is how the music business works. This, you know, this might be what you pick up in, you know, music history class or something, but kind of there's a difference in, in how the real world actually works. Um, talk a little bit about like your teaching philosophy as far as uh, teaching the horn and what you do there at Oberlin and, and that kind of stuff. Here at Oberlin, I've, I've really sort of made a bit of a turn. Um, I was uh, for 18 years, I was an adjunct at a bunch of places, mainly at Montclair State University. Mm-hmm. And then uh, last like three or so years, I did this work at uh, at Manus. Um, and being an adjunct, you just can't really invest too much time, um, just because 
just that's just how they are compensated you know, mm-hmm. so, but when i came here you know i really thought about the, the sort of the whole spectrum of you know taking <coughs> taking students um from where how they how they arrive and 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 truly trying to find the pathway for them to a place in music where they feel comfortable Mm-hmm. And not trying to create a soul uh, a, a soul pathway that you know is sort of the canon that you know has you know existed you know in, for many many years in Europe, but definitely since we started doing classical music here in the states in the late nineteenth uh, century. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so that so that you really realize your true potential. Now that doesn't mean we don't study Mozart. I mean, I can you know show you <laughs> right here on the wall. Uh, you know, everybody uh-huh. gets this. Everybody yeah. gets this. And <laughs> we do we do Koprash and we do one movement of a Mozart so that we understand you know um, when they come in, um, like the history of the instrument. Sure. And uh, and we work on technique and all that stuff. But um, in terms of like you know preparing them for what we call the real world. I'm trying to find the conduit uh, to the real world by giving them real world experience in here. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I don't want to continue and, and you to be really frank, you know, and you know, cut this out if you want. <laughs> to be really frank, I don't. I, I, I insist on not continuing the the basically the Ponzi scheme that is um, telling kids that if they practice, you know, six or seven excerpts and a and an exposition to uh, a concerto that in four years they can go out and just conquer the world that's just not reality not only no, is not at all reality it's not reality it's not the, the path for everyone mm-hmm. um and so there are students that that is what they want and that's what we do and everyone does do the, the excerpts and everything but i also have to prepare and give a, a pathway for kids that want to do new music that want to mm-hmm. do pop that want to do studio that want you know i and so you have to expose them to that stuff um and so we do, um, you know, I get, I get, I've had John Clark come in here and do mm-hmm. blues. He's taught everyone in my class has learned how to play blues. I've had Art R.J. Kelly come in and he's taught them how to play natural horn because I don't know what the heck I'm doing on that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and we get um, Adam Unsworth. Everyone's want to come in and he shows them that you can do both. You can play bebop on the horn, yeah. You can play bebop yeah. on the horn and yeah. the principal in some major orchestra. Yep. You know, they have to see that those are different pathways. That was not the case when I was in school. When I was in school, you learned those excerpts and you da da, and that's how you were judged. And if you didn't do well in that, they were considered to not be such an accomplished young player. Right. It's just mind-boggling because there's talent in all other, you know, uh, the styles of music that you can, you can get. Anyways, I'm, I'm going way deep. But my, my philosophy is that there is a uh, uh, sort of a pedagogy that, uh, technically speaking, we have to address that you're, you're, you're capable of just physically playing the instrument. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to music, um, I'm not going to just go through all the, the, the galley books and all of the, you know, Far Stanley and all that stuff. I'm not just going to cram that down their faces. I'm looking to see, like, what turns you on musically? Mm-hmm. How can I get the same pedagogy out of once we get us a real baseline? How can I get you the same pedagogy that's going to take you to where you want to be musically, yeah, and introduce you to those things as we go along, so that when you leave here, you're 
one step closer to that. And you're not like like me, and you come out and you go. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, success doesn't look the same for every person. I mean, there's not one measure of success for every single person that's ever played the instrument, because that's, as you said, it's just so limiting. I mean, you if you if you're only defining yourself by getting that whatever thing you think you need to get that everybody else seems to be going for that's it's a really tough way to go <laughs> and it's a bad way to, to to walk through life judging yourself by what the rest of the world is doing when that may not necessarily be what's what's best for you um and i think a lot of uh, a, a lot of my colleagues you know coming up that's since that was the only pathway that was given to us they fell off and decided to go elsewhere because it just you know, they weren't presented with any other pathway. Yeah. And it's not for a lack of talent or not for lack of hard work or anything, oh, you know? Man, I, man, I could tell Four players I came up with would run circles around me when we were doing auditions at <laughs> school, you know, but they're not playing anymore. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a shame um, uh, because nowadays there are other pathways. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, uh, it's really important, I think, just to prepare students for you know what what they truly want to be in music. At least give them you know the sampling so that they can make their own choices, be be autonomous in the, in the choosing. Right. I mean, it's it's an exciting time because there are those you know alternate revenue streams. You don't just have to make all your living playing in an orchestra or all your living doing just one thing. Absolutely, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> <You> know, I <laughs> yeah. You know, I did, I did it all. And the thing is, you know, I'd be a hypocrite then if I taught here and said, well, no, you must, you know, learn these excerpts. And then, you know, that, that if I don't show them, because well, they're, they're asking me in studio class, mm -hmm. how did you get to do X? How did you get to do Y? I'm not going to tell them, well, I, you know, I made sure that I practiced all my excerpts and I played for somebody. That's not how that happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? It's just not, yeah. you know. Um, and then there's also networking and, and, you know, learning how, like, just the, the P's and Q's of the business. Now, there are teachers, and I don't know what your teacher was like. Well, my, you know, my teachers taught me that stuff mm -hmm. when I was coming up, you know, yeah. some basic stuff, you know. And uh, that, that just as a baseline just needs to be yeah. not taught, but, like, retold. <laughs> you got to learn the deadly sins. Yeah. <laughs> For right. sure. For sure. But uh, I've, I've, I've had a... a some friends both in and out of music go to Oberlin and I, I bet you get some really intelligent, bright, curious students there. I bet that's a thrill getting to work with those folks. They are, um, they're, they're, you know, it's, it's almost cliche to say, but it's just like a joy. Mm -hmm. um, people that um, think about music and life and, and, and the culture all at the same time and how, how they can figure out how they can like combine all that and, and contribute. And that's what, you know, the majority of the students want to do here. And that's just not in my, only in my studio, like, you know, all, all around. And, um, I've often said, you know, it's, it's, it's my job to kind of just show the path and stay out of the way mm -hmm. you know, and let them, let them sort of like, you know, like you'll die, but you just get out of their way because they are constantly thinking, constantly creating and you know i see it every every student that somewhere between the second and the third year that light comes on man and it's just like wow mm -hmm. wow <laughs> you know these, these kids are on 
fire there. Yeah. 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 And I mean, that's a, it's a great conservatory and you know, it's not that far from Cleveland. I mean, there's, there's cities nearby to do freelancing and stuff. So it, it seems like a good situation there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The Cleveland thing is also really great because I think for like 50 or 60 bucks, you can go the whole season. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's a good band. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty pretty good. We had Nathaniel come down and they're like, they love him because he's he's young like them. Yeah. He's their age, basically. Yeah. Like every week, they go up there. Like, I get up, there's a good chunk of my kids that go up there every week and they, they always wait for the family to come out. And the thing is, they, they, they know his routines. They're like, yeah, well, we know that we had to be late because he likes to warm down. And so we waited another 30 minutes before he came up. You know, oh, that's funny. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. That's very, awesome. Very, very cool. So w- besides the teaching gig, what, what else are you up to? Are you, I know you're still composing because I have a collection. I uh, have the, the Lift Collection Music for horn by black composers and i know you've got a piece in there but what uh we can talk about that project some or if you want to talk about other stuff you're doing these days that'd be cool too well that that was a really cool um project uh yeah i mean it's a, just a, a great project and um uh, i'm just real happy that um i'm doing music in a, in a time period where folks are recognizing um music written by folks of, of different pen colors um, uh, because, you know, we've always been doing it, um, but uh, recognition has not always been there. And um, now that it is, uh, it's just a pleasure to be, you know, associated with organizations um, that are promoting the music. I have, um, I have a, a good, good association with the Detroit Symphony. I've done some stuff with them. I got some stuff coming up in the future. Um, uh, I've written, you know, a bunch of horn stuff. Um, recently, um, I just yeah, I I um I, I've been real fortunate. You know, mm-hmm. Literally, the whole orchestral, vocal, solo, um, I, I've been really fortunate. And to be really honest, if I uh, if I'm if I'm not careful, I'm gonna overdo it. You know, <laughs> really contemplate like you know how much of this teaching. It's because composing is time consuming. Uh, yeah, and then you know the revising process, and then it's it's a lot of it is probably just spending time thinking about you know what you're going to do. To your uh, point about there being composers of color throughout history, that's the cool thing about this collection is it starts off with like 18th century black composers that we a lot of people just never knew about, and so I think it's it's a cool collection. Yeah, I didn't know these folks, you know. Coming up, I you know I, I went through all my schooling. I had never heard about Nathaniel Dett, mm-hmm. Florence Price, William Grant Still. Yeah, I didn't know about these folks. It's it's a shame, you know. Um, and it's great that we're we're, we're doing it now. But boy, you know. So so you know, I just I, I've been in a lot of conversations with um, a lot of initiative groups that are really trying to do um, some some major change. Um, and I was just talking with a, I can't say what, what orchestra, but it's a very, very famous. Okay. Okay. Say, but very close to you, um, is considering, considering, um, uh, in, uh, changing a little bit, the, uh, uh excerpts requirements to be a little bit more diverse and inclusive. And that would be really it, cool. It's a game changer. For sure. If that happens. It's a true 
game changer. Um, because it, um, I think, you know, it's just, it's one thing to say, we're going to play this music. It's another thing to require the incoming applicants to, be mm-hmm. able to play it. Cause then that means that's what us at the conservatories will have to It'll have a ripple effect. Yeah. It has a ripple yeah. effect, you know, yeah. and then that becomes what you audition on when you go to the conservatory, you know, it's the whole, it, it's, you know, that so, is that is game changing because that'll you know as more orchestras perform this repertoire, then they need to hear it on auditions. Then people will study it. Then then they got to buy the excerpts and then you know. <laughs> right, right. So I've been a, I've been a part of a lot of initiatives like that. Weston Sprott. I don't know if you know Weston, mm-hmm. um, but he's yeah he's at you know Juilliard the prep division and he recently uh, spearheaded this big um, uh, project where they they did basically the same thing. They commissioned a bunch of um, uh, black and brown uh, composers to write pieces for the preparatory preparatory division level students who would also then use that those pieces as audition pieces to get into college. So I was a part of that. I just wrote a piece for for, for Weston and, and the the prep division there. So there's you know if institutions like that are doing that kind of important work, it it literally is a game changer. Juilliard says you have to, or you not have to. I shouldn't say that. Take that back. But if Juilliard says an option for you as a solo is a solo work by Jeff Scott to get into Juilliard. It's game changer. That was, that's changer, really cool. You know, it really is. It says so much about what the, the institution thinks about the future of, of classical music. And at home. I can't be more thankful to be a part of that. Yeah. I mean, it's an exciting time to be alive and to be a musician for sure with, with all of the problems in the world and there are plenty, but (laughs) it is, it is, it is an exciting time. So, (laughs) well, uh, Jeff, I think a nice way to kind of wrap up our discussion today. And thanks again, you've you've been so gracious with your time. I think a good way to maybe, uh, talk, uh, get into our last topic of discussion is to talk about the IHS. You've got a, you've got a gig coming up. You're going to be a featured artist at IHS 55 in Montreal. So maybe uh, talk a little bit about, you know, what you, if you want to share a little bit about what your program is going to be and maybe, you know, your involvement with the IHS. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I've, I've been on, I just elected to the board just this mm-hmm. last year, my second year. And uh, that's exciting because you get to be a part of all these decisions, especially when it comes to commissions and so on. And so that's been real exciting. Um, uh, going up to Montreal is going to be a real treat. You know, I, you know, I haven't gone to many of them over the years. Um, and it, it always when it's in a cool place, you kind of want to go because it's a cool place. You know? mm-hmm. um, and I was actually going to go anyway because it's Montreal and I, I love Montreal. And then yeah, yeah, I got the call from Louise. And so um, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be going up there. Um, some of my music is going to be performed by other, uh, other horn players, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm going to premiere this really, really cool piece, and I'm, I'm excited to do it. Um, I, uh, I, my, I found out uh, years ago about a lot of history in my family. And, um, and it, uh, it, it just, when you're, as a composer, looking for source material, um, um, sometimes you run out of ideas, you know, mm-hmm. and with all of this new information that I got about my family and the history and the lineage and all that stuff, I just realized, man, there is a ton of source material there. And so, um, one of the, one of the real tough things that happened for, for, for me and my family recently is that we lost a couple of, um, I lost a couple of uncles to COVID during mm-hmm. the pandemic. And, um, and, and it caused, um, 
uh, my mom to really start talking about some things, um, just sort of um, how she feels about uh, the relationship between her and her brothers and family and everything. And opened up just an amazing amount of just history in my family that she had kept pretty safeguarded, you know, mm-hmm. as most of our parents do with with uh, with trauma and stuff like that. Um, about the second or the third conversation that I had with my mom, who's very much alive, um, um, I decided I was going to record it. Okay. Her. I just wanted to keep it for, you know, just for my own safekeeping. And then when um, uh, I um, I knew I was going to be doing this last year uh, at, in Montreal, I said, I want to bring a new piece. And I didn't want to compose it, though, because I didn't want to be that close to it. So I got mm. a close friend of mine, amazing composer, by the name of Brazilian composer, by the name of Rodrigo Bolsan, um, to write me a piece using her voice and those recordings and me um, as a as source material. Oh wow! And it is it's a powerful, powerful piece. Um, what I found out is that when my mom and I are talking and we get sort of into it a little bit, you know, like just relax and stuff, that we both have extremely jazz influence and tendencies um for instance she'll say something like blah 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 i did blah 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 i go what like that that's so interesting you know (laughs) like you know it's just natural and we all as human beings have those ways of responding inside the way you laugh that sort of thing and so he found a way rodrigo found a way to notate all that stuff oh my goodness i'm playing with my own voice with my mom's voice responding. Uh, it's a really, really good piece. It's challenging because I have to do that foot pedal thing. You know? uh-huh. I've never done that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the choreography is tough on the, some of that stuff where you have to get effects and things in there. Yeah. So that's what the big practice, the big practice for me is just to not like, you know, like kick the thing and knock it on the floor. <laughs> But I'm really excited to premiere that piece. I'm going to do some. Um, I'm going to do some, uh, some lyre songs. I'm going to do a couple of during the pandemic. I also commissioned a bunch of etudes from a bunch of uh, 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 composer friends of mine, and I'm going to play some of those. Oh wow! Okay. Um, um, some uh, some jazz influenced uh, etudes. Um, I'm going to do an arrangement of an original piece that I did for a wind quintet with big band, and I'm going to I'm going to redo it for four horns and, and big band. It's this Latin jazz piece. Oh, that's going to be amazing. Real, real funky, man. We're going to have some fun with that. Um, so I don't know who we're going to play with, but I hope they can blow because he's going to, everybody's going to be like, hey, we're going to blow. We're going to play. I think they'll be able to find some folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they'll be able to find some people. So yeah, you're right. That's so, exciting. That's yeah, that's just, that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I, I don't know if any of those things are published yet, but I, I hope they do get published because I, I sign me up for all of it because I think, you know, People are going to eat that stuff up because, yeah, Mozart's great. Kopash is great. It's all great, but you can't just live on that alone. <laughs> right. And it'll always be my thing, especially if somebody's listening to this podcast and they go, man, he needs to. No, it's always going to be great. There's nothing that has been established that Mozart crosses <laughs> that they're great. We don't even have to have that conversation. Right. Let's find some other great stuff to put with it. <laughs> right. It takes nothing away from them to program other music. Yeah. Let's do yeah. it. Let's have a party and invite Mozart. <laughs> that that's amazing, Jeff. That's so cool. Oh, <laughs> I, I don't think we could go out on a better note.